0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here. Today we have a super fun episode. Allie Houston is a former physicist who fixed his brain with food. After suffering from ADHD, seasonal depression, chronic anxiety, and a host of other metabolic problems, paleoketogenic diet and lifestyle change resulted in a quantum leap in his health. The effect was so profound that he switched careers. He's now a metabolic mental health coach trained by PreCure and Dr. Georgia E. Today, Clarissa and I asked Ali about how changing his diet changed his life and career. Ali shared his story of how he was quite unwell from a young age and how his physics professor suggested he try a low carb diet. After trying it, Ali experienced a huge transformation in his mental health, gut health, and weight control. This led him to change his career to metabolic mental health coaching, where he helps people with food and mood, nutritional psychiatry, depression, and anxiety. Ali believes that there's a cultural component as to why men maybe are less likely to self-identify as food addicts, and that it's hard for them to admit they have a problem. He believes that if food addiction is recognized in the DSM, it will allow people to embrace it more and be more open to it. He also believes that meeting people where they are is important, and that understanding the mechanism of addiction can help people to make changes. Ali shares his approach to avoiding giving unsolicited advice and talks about his experiments with different diets. He also discusses his podcast, YouTube channel, and book, which focus on mental health and nutrition science. Finally, Ali discusses the importance of finding an individualized diet that works for each person, emphasizing the need to find foods that both taste good and are beneficial for one's health. He also discussed the importance of having hope and believing that things can get better. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Ali. So welcome, Allie. All right.
0: So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Today on the Food Junkies podcast, we have the incredible Allie Houston with us. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Um, I really appreciate your work and thanks for having me on.
0: Great. So, we usually like to start off with getting our guests to kind of share their personal story about how changing their diet also changed their life and their health. So, and specifically, was there an aha moment for you? And then now, how you've kind of used this to transform your professional career?
2: Yeah. So, I was quite unwell from when I was a child, really. I had a variety of, you know, autoimmune diseases. I, um, I had to have surgery for autoimmune disease, I uh, had to have medication, I had chronic anxiety, I had depression, I had brain fog, Uh, I was diagnosed as an adult with ADHD. And there were other problems that I had, you know, uh, one of my specialist doctors used to nickname me the encyclopedia, because I was like a walking encyclopedia of illness. And through all that, you know, I, I managed to eventually work out what I wanted to do and got a physics degree and I was working in that area, physics and engineering, uh, laser physics specifically, and I decided to start a PhD but my problems had really been kind of up and down but generally getting worse to the point where when I started my PhD which was in gravitational wave physics um, using lasers to try to find these gravitational waves that come from outer space. I was performing at my worst in years. So my brain fog was at a maximum. I socially wasn't functioning very well. And I'd found that in the past that I'd been, you know, by turns kind of quite gregarious and outgoing, but then at my worst, quite depressed and insular and, you know, avoiding eye contact and all the rest of it. So I wasn't feeling good and I was lucky because one of my academic supervisors in the physics department at the university over that had a few years prior healed his chronic fatigue syndrome ME by changing what he ate. So he's an amazing guy, Professor Ken Strain. He was was told basically he would never work again, probably in his early forties. And um, he couldn't really walk more than about 50 yards without collapsing and couldn't really stay awake or, or concentrate, which for, you know, physics professor is devastating. For anyone it's devastating. But he kind of lived by his wits. So he dived into the research, found Gary Tobbs and switched to a low carb diet, keto diet really. And then within six months, he'd gone from basically bedridden, looking at uh, never working again to running 10Ks again. So he was kind of, he had that aha moment uh, several years before I had joined the department, uh, joined the group. And so he developed this kind of very deep side interest in nutrition. So when I came along exhibiting the signs potentially of deficiency or of metabolic dysfunction, he kind of saw the signs and was able to point me in the right direction. Now, I wasn't sure, I'm not sure how receptive I was at first. He um, kind of let me come to him and I think the aha moment for me was when he was saying things like wheat might not really be considered food, or nobody should be eating margarine, or I eat one meal a day, mostly ruminant meat, and it all just sounded crazy to me. and. if it wasn't coming from a fairly eminent physics professor, I might not have taken it seriously, you know? I think this this leads into something that I talk about a lot now, feeling like I'm a recovering physicist, because that slight intellectual snobbery around things kind of comes from the training that you're given, that uh, there is a, a scientific answer usually already established. And if it's not, then um, it's, it's surely close at hand. and because it was ken because i trusted him and because the medical profession had more or less let me down up till that point i thought well what have i got to lose so he suggested that i I try places like the hyperlipid blog or zero carb zen or gary todd's work and i think when you really devour these resources and get into understanding chronic illness especially from the perspective of people who've gone through it and not really been helped out that much you know maybe given symptom relief by drugs or uh, therapy that kind of papers over the cracks and particularly in the sort of you know autoimmune or chronic disease community so i read a lot around forums in chronic fatigue syndrome me like phoenix rising forums Um, There was some great stuff on um, thyroid and autoimmune there, people having to fend for themselves and and come up with something that that might work to help, Uh, autism spectrum disorder, mast cell activation syndrome, as it's increasingly uh, called, and how kind of all roads seem to lead to diet. And I got very interested in paleo and keto and how they might combine the quiet down chronic inflammation and problems with the gut and um, damage that can happen there. So I decided, right, I'm just going to try it. I'm going to go keto. And I did that in March 2016, having dabbled a bit with paleo the year before. And within weeks, most of the major problems that I had with my gut, with my mental health and with controlling my weight and, appositely for your podcast, controlling you know, addictive eating all just sort of cleared up. It was really, you know, a huge kind of conversion for me. And everything started there. And in terms of how it affected my profession, I changed it. I knew that year, you know, that summer I was thinking, I have been trained as a physicist, I've worked as a physicist and engineer, but you know, I can't let this amazing thing that happened to me just be about me. You know, I really wanted to share it with as many people as I could because I suspected that if I went through the mental health transformation that I did because of what I did with my diet, then other people could do that too. And at the time, there wasn't the same ecosystem that there is now for calling it out as a a potential mental health game changer. You know, there was people who are extremely credible writing about it at the time, particularly Amber O'Hearn. Uh, Georgia Eid, but you know, they were, I suppose, considered on the fringe and that didn't bother me. I really like thinkers on the fringe. I think they have a lot to say and, and Georgia's website is still one of my favorites. Amber's writing is among my favorite. So I, I, I've got that scientific background. I don't mind diving into the papers. You know, I really like following their stuff. I think it's taken these last kind of seven years to get to the stage where um, the world is ready, if you like, for that message around food and mental health to go kind of mainstream, which has led to what I'm doing now, which is metabolic mental health coaching and setting up MetSci the website and soon-to-be app with one of your previous guests, Dr. Rachel Brown, also from Scotland. So it's really been about changing who I am as a functioning metabolic entity and also how I think about the world. Because as a recovering physicist, I've gone from assuming that there's this, you know, all that matters in a sense in scientific understanding is this mechanistic, uh, hog like appreciation of the world, mathematical in a way, whereas I've come to appreciate that meeting the the human being where they are in their journey is almost, it's it's as as important maybe where you've uh, evangelized about what positive things have happened with your diet and your health and being kind of sort of amazed frustrated maybe angry that people haven't just immediately converted to doing what you do you know i particularly people who are close you know people find that i found that that family members or friends who had chronic conditions didn't just immediately say oh great i'll do the same Um, in fact sometimes they've they've never even really mentioned it here I am, seven years later, changing career, starting up businesses about it, and you know, t- talking about clients who've transformed their lives like I did, and they haven't done anything. And I've had to realize that it's not just about offering information. It's not just about the mechanistic. It's not just about explaining at people. It's about understanding an individual's motivations and their journey, and whether they actually want to do something and why. So I guess that's it. Yeah, it's been quite a wild ride, but I'm so passionate about it, and I just you know always really appreciate when uh, people want to know.
1: So is it safe to assume you never did finish the PhD then in physics?
2: That's right. Yeah, in a way it was unfortunate. You know, I uh, I'd spent a couple of years before I changed my diet, underperforming, if you like, and there's only so many years funding. So by the time I kind of dialed everything in and felt sharp, I had gone through best part of three years funding, which is nearly the whole PhD. So I could have tried to get more funding or an extension or something like that. But because I've had that transformation, I really considered my whatever skills i have to be best used in helping other people like i've been helped and it's funny because you know one of my kind of closest friends and confidants is still hen and so he went from being a physics supervisor to one of the people i turn to whenever i'm talking about diet or um discussing a paper and um, about health and um you know we still see each other regularly and um yeah we talk about physics a little bit black holes and uh, and the like but you know um it's really it's really about uh, mitochondria more than anything and then um, in a way it protected me from being tempted to go back down the path of a career in physics because i think when you're qualified like that it is tempting when you're trying to plow your own furrow and like i say there wasn't this ecosystem of people looking to fund mental health metabolic mental health work or really people out there who understood that it might help to, to get coaching or to get help and to, to stick to their, their, their metabolic health plan, um, whereas nowadays there is. And so I think, in a way, painting myself into a corner by saying, I don't really mind what I do, in a sense, in this space as long as I can help the most people I can. Um, not getting the physics phd was was a blessing in that regard because it, it just uh, it just made me go down that route and choose a hundred percent
1: yeah that's so amazing i just think about you know the courage it had to have taken to make to like say this is an anchor and it's keeping me stuck or you know it's the path of least resistance it makes the quote-unquote most sense but is it truly where my soul my passion is it truly what i want to do anymore now that I know something different or more. So I'm really curious to know then, like what specifically do you help people with? Is it food and mood, nutritional psychiatry? Like how do you use food to treat mental health concerns like depression and anxiety? And really importantly, we wanna know, do you get male clients? So a lot of questions there, but (laughs) yeah, tell us all about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, so I set up uh, coaching in the last few years formally after doing training with uh cure so new zealand based coach training company brilliant run by uh grant schofield and louise schofield and set up by louise and i got brilliant training there and uh, felt much more equipped to meet the individual where they were at whereas i think before i was perfectly happy to help people from seven years ago you know I, I guess maybe somewhere between one in a thousand and one in ten thousand people if I had to guess it, would ever be interested in fully reading and understanding any scientific paper whatsoever most people just don't want to do it and I don't blame them you know you can look at, at one paper coming from Oxford and one from Harvard and they say more or less opposite so what chance do people have unless they really Explore the wider scientific literature and spend a lot of their time doing it. Now, for most people, that's just not something they want to spend their time on, and I totally get it. You know, we all want smartphones, but, you know, none of us should really, very few of us should really know how to build one ourselves. We have to trust people, we have to find experts that uh, we think know what they're talking about. So I think, given my training in physics and understanding the scientific process, I feel confident in interpreting scientific data, I'm up to a point acknowledging my limitations in terms of how much time I can spend doing it, and that you know, I'm not the cleverest person in the world, and everyone has uh, these kinds of limitations and uh, biases, of course and particularly someone who's gone through such a big transformation you know I, i had to realize that what i did wasn't going to just magically work for everyone and that there's many ways to skin the cat And that, But that is something that I bring, is the scientific knowledge boiled down in a way that people can relate to and understand and just take away messages. So that's something that that I do for people and I've done since day one. But then, like I say, this training in meeting the individual where they are, I think that is where the real magic happens. And so in the last few years, I've got into the the writing of uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who's a brilliant psychiatrist. Originally, he was an English scholar and so very much into poems and and prose, but he felt that in analyzing these things, somehow the patient died on the operating table. That there's something about how we think and how we analyze the world and how we bring our attention to the world that is fundamentally divided and that there is this urge to be bureaucratic mechanistic break everything down mathematically and understand it that way which is completely understandable it really helps us to you know have iPhones or fly planes and etc etc but you lose something when you try and do that with everything people don't want to feel like they're machines being tinkered with and he found that when he moved into psychiatry, remarkable things, unfortunate things happen when people have strokes on different sides of their brain, you know, so that the different brain hemispheres have, you know, they, they, they both, there's a lot of pop psychology out there which which uh, is not valid, but, you know, both both hemispheres do everything to an extent, but they specialise in very important ways. And his kind of seminal book is called The Master and His Emissary. And he thinks that the right hemisphere should really be the master. And it deals with common sense, wisdom, intuition, you know, if you like, the muse, the voice from the gods. That kind of thing and a wholeness. And then the left hemisphere is more like oh and yeah, in the right hemisphere is the ma it should be the master. The left hemisphere is should be the emissary, which is like a skilled bureaucrat and it can order things very well and make things work like clockwork. But what happens in the modern world is it kind of gets switched around. So that the the left hemisphere has the master led away in chains, and we end up with this um, uh, over simplified and kind of mechanised version of the world, flattened somehow, devoid of common sense, and um, missing the kind of wisdom that is there if we would just look into our past, and so and and even just more simply than that the wisdom and intuition that's there right in front of us when we're talking to other human beings so this has really spoken to what I like to do with people when I'm working with them which is to listen to them and to understand who they are and to try to use my intuition as much as my you know scientific reasoning about what I know about gut health, gut problems leading to chronic inflammation and various other mitochondrial things and blah 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 and people want to be listened to and understood as a a whole human being and so those are the two things that I try to do broadly speaking and sort of more specifically I've niched in the last year much more towards mental health because it was actually I think the most profound change for me I really, you know, I had I started I started having suicidal ideations around 2013 because and a lot of people kind of alight on this idea including people in my family and about a quarter of the UK population by fairly recent statistics that if I can't get rid of what's going on in my brain then if I kill myself then that'll get rid of it and it's kind of horrible that that's the statistic. But that's where people get to so often. Um, and the fact that I had this calmness, this serenity, this peace away from all of the thoughts that plagued me, the darkness, the, you know, the problems with food addiction, and the problems about how, how I felt when I looked at myself in the mirror, both in terms of mental health and, and my weight, that is the most profound change, and it's actually quite hard to communicate. You know, this is another thing that Ian McGilchrist talks about. You sort of need metaphors to really explain the, the gear change that goes on when you go from chronically anxious and depressed, particularly in the winter, to just feeling calm and like your mood is high and even. Describing it like that doesn't really do it justice. Um, So the specializing niching into mental health was super important to me. As I say, Georgia Ead's website was where I, I found a lot of high quality information early on. And so I was lucky enough to do her training for ketogenic diets for mental health last year. And I'd connected a few years ago with Rachel Brown, um, who's a psychiatrist who you've had on podcast, and um, we got on really well. I think we both lamented the fact that in Scotland, even above the rest of the UK and Western Europe and a lot of the Western world, Scotland is quite unhealthy metabolically. And there's maybe cultural reasons for that, but also we're we're at a higher latitude, so you know you get these problems that seem to compound when you've got sort of shorter days in the winter, less vitamin D um, other benefits of, of proper, you know, uh, circadian rhythm. So we wanted to join forces as best we could to address the issues that are out there. We both have a similar background and understanding in terms of metabolic health, gut health, mental health, and quite a different kind of, training background where although both scientific, hers is in traditional psychiatry and care in that regard, and mine is in in physics. So we thought we complemented each other quite well. And so beyond the one-to-one coaching that has the kind of energy that I'm talking about around a kind of mix between really meeting the individual where they are as a human being and bringing as much as I can in terms of the knowledge of the science to that relationship. I've joined with Rachel to start MetSci and get to as many people as we can so we've started the website in january and people can go on there they can register for free and they'll get the resources which for some people is all they need and like myself i just needed to be pointed towards good information and i could run with it um i think it's important to say from the start that People who are on psychiatric medication should always work with a prescriber to make sure that if they make a change like that, then they are, if they want to take their medication or increase it if they feel worse at first, which can happen, the ketogenic diet and other lifestyle measures can be very powerful and it shouldn't just be something that you that you do without consulting your prescriber Um but that being said some people do just need the information and to work with a prescriber and they're great and it, and it really really changes their life other people might need more support not least because of food addiction issues and so rachel and i are offering small group sessions where there's kind of between six and twelve people and um we're kind of populating that at the moment around the world, and we're going to be launching that soon and we're also later in the year launching um, an app which will provide free resources and the ability to join in with these group sessions and a course that we're going to launch, which, Besides offering this high quality information and videos with experts in different elements of what people need to know around ketogenic diets and lifestyle for, for improving their mental health, they'll get live Q&As with myself and Rachel. So we really want to offer kind of one stop shop for people to improve their mental health, and that's whether they've been diagnosed with something or not. Because I think lots of people maybe don't want to speak to their doctor about it. They they don't feel like they need a prescription for anxiety or depression or something like that. They just want to know how they can get better from where they're, they're at. And then all the way through to people who have diagnoses like ADHD or OCD or anxiety or depression, even people like Ambro Hearn or Ian Campbell, who have bipolar diagnoses or you know schizophrenia diagnoses, if people are not currently in a mental health crisis or acutely suicidal, then they can work with us, and we can give them the information. They can get the, the level of support that they feel like they need, and we can help them to get better.
0: Yeah, like proactive rather than reactive, right? We don't have to be in our worst state possible before we reach out for help. And that's something that both Molly and I fully believe in. And I'm just curious, like as Molly asked you about the male population, if you find that it is a bit more challenging for them to reach out and ask for help, we certainly specialize in the field of food addiction. And we have our own company, Sweet Sobriety, where we do small group coaching and counseling. And the population of males very slim in there. And we just wondered what your experience was. And if you, if you had any thoughts about why?
2: Yes. And I think particularly around talking on food addiction, there's more females who are comfortable in self-identifying as food addicts. And it's not, it's not clear to me at all that there's just more female food addicts. I don't think that's true. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on there. I know that... The literature is pretty strong on, for example, depression being more common in females and that that's not just about them admitting that they're more depressed, they're actually more prone to negative emotion on average, but males are more likely to complete suicide. And so it's a very complicated picture around gender and mental health, I would say. And there is something around uh, macho culture and not admitting you've got a problem, sense of uh, competition with other males where you don't want to admit weakness, and that that is definitely in the culture. It's funny because I think it can take longer for male clients, in my experience, to come around to the idea that they have a problem with food addiction it's a sense of uh, just them having a bigger blind spot around it so i think almost all of the women i've I've coached who have food addiction problems are more or less willing to admit that straight away The, the problem isn't admitting they've got a problem the problem is overcoming it whereas with men it's really hard for them to even get around to that idea. And I think even when they know that you know that they know that they've got a problem, they might not want to name it. And that's okay too. I think if they can find strategies where it sits okay with them and they can actually get the work done without having to somehow say it out loud or-, or, go, or
0: Identify or diagnose or whatever label, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Then that's okay. It is funny though, because you see people kind of, who, I think the people who do the best really embrace it, really embrace it and, and say, you know, this is me, I'm not ashamed anymore, because shame is so prevalent around this issue. And so it's hard because somehow, sometimes the, the, the deeper you dig or the harder you push, the more client retreats. And so it's, um, and particularly around men and talking about food addiction, I think the idea that you could be an alcoholic is much more accepted somehow amongst males than the idea that you could be addicted to chocolate or ice cream. And I think there's there's a huge cultural component, but I think there's something fundamentally different in in the psyche that I haven't quite got a hold of yet, but I've definitely noticed.
0: Yeah, it feels like with food they should be able to have more control, more power over it, right? Than something that's an identified substance already in the DSM. And so we think that that if food addiction or ultra-processed food addiction does get in the DSM-ICD, it will allow people to embrace it a little bit more because now at least it's actually out there and it's a, you know, a diagnosis. And so they know other people are struggling with it. But for right now, it just still seems like diet culture, right? When you, when people say, oh, I struggle with food and, you know, if if I am a macho guy, I'm not, maybe I'm going to be much more resistant to admitting that.
2: Absolutely, yes. And I can identify with that from my experience of other addictive behavior. So I used to smoke cigarettes and I lived in China for a year after I got my physics degree. I was was an English teacher in China and uh, smoking cigarettes over there is kind of like a patriotic duty. It was changing a little bit when I was over there, but um, more or less everyone smoked. I saw a doctor smoke in a hospital corridor, just, you know, really crazy. And um, so I was smoking forty a day when I was there, and my addictive personality extends in all in, in in many directions. And it wasn't, but kind of what might be surprising is it wasn't the fact that smoking was almost certainly going to kill me if I kept doing it that led to me quitting. It was reading a scientific paper that said when smokers are smoking, about eighty percent of their their dopamine or their their sense of motivation. Uh, comes from the nicotine. And I just really didn't like the idea that my emotional landscape was being regulated by something external. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, which is that I had, you know, I, I said how it can't just be about the mechanistic understanding of the world. We have to meet people where they are. Well, for me, as a, a bit of a nerd and a physicist, that actually is where I'm at a lot of the time. So, Knowing that I was regulating my emotional landscape, knowing the mechanism disturbed me and shook me into change. And I think you're right that if it was in the DSM that ultra processed food addiction was a recognised, mechanistically understood kind of ailment, if you like, or you know something you can almost have like a, like a genetic predisposition, then all of a sudden it goes from a character flaw to uh, something you can just deal with in the open. So I totally agree with what you're saying.
0: Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just gonna take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body or self.
3: Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support then please join the free facebook group i'm sweet enough sugar free for life there you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum from the new and just starting out to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery to counselors ready to give back and help you the facebook group even offers free support zoom groups Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us.
0: Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners.
1: Yeah. And speaking of that, you share a lot about like in your YouTube videos and, and interviews and that kind of thing. You do share a lot about keeping your personal bias and diet dogma and like how you see the world necessarily like out of your work with your clients. And I'm just wondering, you know, one, how do you do that? And what should people look for to find someone with the same approach? Like, let's say time zones or something doesn't work for working with you, Ali. Like, you know, how do you do that and what should they look for? For, for how, do they, how do they identify a coach or a clinician or somebody who acts or treats their clients the same way?
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm working, you know, I've, I've worked with someone who actually kind of engaged the services of someone much, you know, who's got a very high profile, who does coaching services and I think who's very, very smart, but who more or less told them what to do uh, without kind of finding out who the person was. And although I'm sure the information was very good, I think that was what led this client to come to me and stay with me because it was weird. When I started the the Pre-Cure coaching training, I thought I would be kind of told how to tell people what to do. And actually it's the opposite. It was the first rule almost is never ever give unsolicited advice. So my biases around diet science and my kind of dietary dogma that I come out with from time to time. Hopefully hopefully I, I try to not ever use dogma because I suppose for me dogma is about being not open to change. And I think as you understand more and as more information comes out, then you can change your position uh, without shame because new information has appeared. And I think the best scientists do that and admit where they don't know things. And so I'm very open with clients about what I don't know and that there's huge individualization in all of this. But this is even if we get to the stage where they want to know what I think. So the way I avoid giving people unsolicited advice is I wait to hear who about who they are and understand who they are, and then and only then, well, if I've got something in my head that I think might be useful to them, then I'll ask them, you know, do you want to hear any information about this, that or the other thing that you've been speaking about, and if they say no nah, i'm not interested i've I've got enough of that, then I won't tell them and I don't know how to rework out who's going you know who's going to be able to do that in in terms of um people who can support them like a coach or whatever but that's how I do it. I am very wary about giving unsolicited advice because, you know, who likes getting unsolicited advice? Nobody.
0: No, that's so great. And I mean, both Molly and I are clinicians. So we come from a client based, you know, that's how we learned how to work with individuals is you work with the client where they're at and you help them meet their goals. And so we are never the expert. They are the expert, the person who shows up in front of us. So we love hearing when other health coaches are doing similar things. What i find fascinating about you like i've certainly done like more of a keto diet or more of a carnivore diet to like experience what that might be like but you do challenges like McOctober october and what was it grass February. so can you tell us a little bit more about those experiments and some of the things you found
2: yeah sure so last october I decided to only eat McDonald's triple burgers, so no bun, no cheese, just the condiments and the, the little chopped onions and, and gherkins. And I supplemented that with egg yolks cooked in beef dripping towel. And I did that for the whole month. And I really wanted to, It was. I did it for a few reasons. I think there's some snobbery in diet communities around where people should buy food and there's also a, a kind of assumption that large companies don't have a role to play here, either positive or negative. So some people think you really just have to take responsibility for what you're doing and change. Whereas I think there's definitely a place for acknowledging that large corporations have agency here. They lobby governments, they they try to have dietary guidelines and laws changed. You know they use highly subsidized low nutrition ingredients in their foods they definitely contribute to the ill health of the population but on the other hand i showed by you know doing a whole month in october of just eating these mcdonald's burgers that you can they actually sell some nice food as well you know that um The beef they use in the UK is like British and Irish beef. It's very high quality. It's almost all grass-fed. There'll be some of it is slightly grain-finished or, you know, they'll have silage in the winter when it's too cold for them to be out on the grass. But British and Irish beef is super high quality and McDonald's in the UK uses that. And I felt extremely healthy. I felt great. felt as as good as I I ever have by the end of of October last year. And it started conversations. So people who had never heard of carnivore thought I was crazy and that I might hurt myself. And they were really surprised to hear all the stuff I was talking about when I was talking about it. Um, So it was a kind of, uh, to them, a slightly extreme position, but a really nice way to spark off conversations around what carnivore is and how it might help people, just because it's, it's so restrictive. And it certainly showed me that just beef and eggs was Plenty to to feel good on. Now I think they really came into their own these experiments as a, as a pair because even after all the, the positive conversations I'd had around animal welfare and whether you know eating meat at all is the right thing to do, the role of corporations in our food chain, whether a carnivore diet can be healthy and can actually help reverse conditions and so on. And um, when I did grass fed in February this year, I just ate grass fed. Beef and lamb. Um, it wasn't all muscle meat. I did have some offal, a little bit of liver, but no eggs this time. And within a couple of weeks, I felt really bad, and um, I, you know, had brain fog. And uh, I, 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 what I really struggled with was getting access to my vocabulary. So I was constantly kind of grasping for words. I thought, well, "This isn't very good." I've gone from eating, you know, McDonald's patties and any old egg yolks cooked in beef dripping and feeling the best I've ever felt, to having top of the range, organic, grass-fed beef and lamb and feeling terrible. And I thought, well, what's the difference? The difference really is the egg yolks and what's in the egg yolks that might make a difference here? And I took a guess. Pauline is something that's very high in egg yolks and it's associated with neurotransmitter production and it's something I've supplemented right at the start of my journey and felt positive benefits. So I supplemented choline and within twenty-four hours I was my word recall was was back to where it was and I thought, well, I'm going to scrap this experiment because I didn't feel good. So I reintroduced egg yolks and I went around the supermarket and did what I I I very often do, which is just look at food and try to really intuit whether I want to eat that. And I think once you get rid of the foods that drive unhealthy eating patterns, whatever that means for you, and that'll be sort of 90% of the supermarket, then you can look at the foods that are left and intuit what you want to eat and what might be good for you and that to me is real intuitive eating it's fine to be restrictive i think that's still healthy if the 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 foods you're restricting are unhealthy for you and i can find that i look at liver and i i just want to eat lots of that you know i might have 500 grams of that once in a while and then i don't want to eat much for a day or two other times it doesn't look appealing to me at all. And I'll, I'll say, I'll look at shellfish, for example. And I really want that. So I have half a kilo of prawns or something. And so I did that in the middle of grass fedgery. And for a few days, I, I ate voraciously whatever I felt like. Uh, and it was lots of egg yolks, lots of seafood. So whatever was happening to me, just eating ruminant, very fatty ruminant meat. And I'm talking like, you know, swimming in fat. That's typically uh, the, the kind of, Calorie balance I go for is like 80% of my um, calories are from uh, ruminant fat, non-dairy ruminant fat. Uh, Yeah, abandoned, you know, just eating the ruminant meat and included all this other stuff. And then within a few days, I felt back to my old self completely and for people who follow me I think they've told me that seeing this experimentation is really interesting to them because they know that I know a fair amount about nutrition science and I'm still finding out stuff about myself and I think that is also true for people who've been doing this for you know 10, 20 years. It doesn't matter. Your metabolism can change, and so you know, my Twitter handle handle is Ali transforms, and I really feel like you know it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. Your opinion about the science should be open to transformation. Your physical and mental health is always subject to transformation in either direction, as I showed in grass fedry. And um, I think what is right for you right now is always open to transformation and, and change. And um, so I think these experiments kind of show that. And um, I think I like you know when you're when you're uh, taught physics, you quite often look at what happens at the extreme ends of things. You learn a lot from these kind of extreme positions, and I think that's true for these experiments. That if uh, if you take what seems like an extreme position and and just run with it then you can really learn a lot. And I certainly have.
1: Yeah. And you alluded to, you know, people who follow you and they like been following along and they can hear you do make these, you know, hypotheses and then test that out. They hear your interviews, that kind of thing. Will you tell us about the podcast, the YouTube channel, your book, even, um, you know, why should listeners check them out? What can they expect?
2: Yeah. The, the podcast I've been doing for a few years now and, um, it's been in some ways a way for me to have long conversations with people I admire and want to know things from. But obviously the main reason is that I do the podcast is to, is to get the kind of information that allowed me to transform my health out to as many people as possible in whatever way I might connect with them, because different people's energy will, uh, connect with with one person where it might not with another so i like to i like to get people i admire on who have something to say about uh, something that resonates for me Um, increasingly around mental health uh you know i've had georgia edon who's a hero of mine did her training last year Uh, she was brilliant to talk to Uh, brett share who's such a careful advocate of using diet and lifestyle i know he's been on your podcast you know, he other heroes of mine like uh, Peter Dobromilski who wrote the Hyperlipid blog. He's been on a couple of times. Tucker Goodrich, who's really, uh, who's a really cool, interesting guy. Who's probably the main reason why we're talking about seed oils so much. I think he pulled on a thread that, and he's and he, and he's very tenacious, and you know, not let it lie. And I'm I'm I think. I'm trying to piece a, the big puzzle together. That's one of the, the reasons I get people on. You know, Brad Marshall is a very interesting character who's come on the podcast a couple of times, who is similarly, I think, trying to put all the pieces together to work out the full metabolic picture. You know, if you like to take the, the mechanistic understanding of this system or that system, and really work out what is the sort of common sense hole that ties it together and that's what i'm trying to do with podcast. and i try to be as open as possible so i get i get guests on and just hopefully let them express themselves and let them talk and and let their kind of energy shine through so that's mainly what i do with the podcast and um, with i've, I've done I've, I've worked quite hard on and some of my videos on my YouTube channel. I'd like to do more of them, but they're very time-consuming because uh, they're, I, I try to research them very carefully so that they hopefully are evergreen and they don't go out of date, and that they they are valuable for people. So I've done a video, you know, videos about my mental health and diet, and about kind of the low-quality uh, nutrition research which is out there, which tends to make the the front page of of websites and newspapers, which is you know very often based on shoddy associational science where the the associations aren't actually very strong between variables like, say, uh, outcomes like red meat and cancer, for example. Yeah, so a little bit of kind of science communication as well on the YouTube channel. And it's it's kind of an ongoing thing. I think with my podcast being called Ali Houston Transforms, I've given myself wiggle room to make the podcast about something new whenever I feel like it. Definitely the kick at the moment is, is more and more towards mental health because that's just where, as I say, the most profound, I had the most profound effect. And now there is this ecosystem out there to really, the world is more receptive to this idea. Georgia says that the studies have shown conclusively that the head is part of the body and that metabolic health is mental health. So I've had Chris Palmer on as well. And whenever I have someone on who's a bit more of a generalist, like Brad Marshall or Peter Dobromilski, I talk about how their investigations impact on mental health. And I think that can be very revealing too. So yeah, more of that coming for sure. I've got some very interesting guests coming on. The next one I'm recording is actually Amber O'Hearn, Rafi Sertoli, uh, Andreas ian from Diet Doctor and Ted Neiman, and they're all coming on together. To talk about satiety per calorie. I don't know if this is something that you've been following. On yeah, there's like lots that. on
0: Twitter lately, been lots of stuff going on there for sure in that conversation. So that would be fascinating.
2: Yeah, I had Ted and Amber on last year, which was a very popular episode, kind of broadly talking about whether to prioritize fat or protein. And it's something that comes up with clients because it's a question not just of the mechanistic again, but of what people actually prefer to do. You know, some people find it quite difficult to get fat in their diet, even though when they try and succeed, they find that they feel much better. Whereas other people, when they prioritize lean protein, they feel better. So great.
0: Yeah. Well, it is bio-individual, right? We did like a DNA profiling for nutrition and even among our three co-hosts of the Food Junkies podcast, and I am relatively saturated fat intolerant. So when I did do keto or more carnivore, I was bloated and I felt awful. And so intuitively I had transitioned until I found that out. And so, but these are the fascinating conversations we want to be having to say, like, there's no one way. And like you said, like, you were eating a way that seemed optimal to you when you were doing that grass fed, but there was something missing, and your body signaled you that this was not the right fit for you. So I
2: love these talks. Yeah, the the one with four people coming on. I'm I'm interested to see how well I can wrangle everyone because they're all you know very brainy. They all have their own things to say actually i think sometimes sometimes um the surprising thing is how much when you get people like that in the room how much they really agree that it is individual and that people do need to find out for themselves and the satiety per calorie is a kind of a shortcut for people who aren't going to read scientific papers you know what is a good shortcut to understand what you can reach for because i don't know how you find it in your small group sessions i'd be interested to know but the, ma- the major question that people come back to again and again is how can I eat things that work for me metabolically that I actually like? And so having a scale like satiety per calorie or whatever it may be that is somehow a shortcut to understanding what might be useful metabolically and then just choosing foods that you really like from that list or recipes, I can see how it could be an advantage.
0: Yeah, to keep it simple, quick, easy, right? I mean, we've obviously already been, you know, emerged in this convenient lifestyle, right? But how can we do this for ourselves in ways so that we do cook and prepare, but it doesn't take such a long time and we don't have to create these elaborate meals because I know you have a, a great cookbook as well, but it just makes sense in terms of how can I prioritize this and make it more efficient and also enjoyable at the same time.
1: Yeah. And one of the ways that we do talk to clients, or at least I know I do is like, you know, especially working in the realm of food addiction, right, is that we kind of look at it in this like step by step process where first we remove the things that are lighting up our brain like a Christmas tree, like whatever it is that once we start, we can't stop, whatever. And then it comes to like the medical you know, or metabolic or medical level. So it's like, okay, now we're going to so whatever's left from, you know, if we have all the foods in the world, engineered or otherwise, and we remove the things that are lighting up our brain. What's left? What do we need to remove for a metabolic medical reason? And then from all of that that's left, what do you prefer? Do you need to remove things because you don't prefer them? Do you need to add the, you know, or what do you keep because you do prefer them? Like, what do you highlight? What do you make more abundant? And I found that when I talk to clients in those terms, it really simplifies it for them. And they don't, feel so overwhelmed kind of in the way you were just describing. I was like, oh gosh, I feel overwhelmed. Just kind of hearing you ask that question that clients have asked. So like, if we just keep it really simple, get those things out that once you start, you can't stop metabolic or medical reasons. Next, if you're allergic to peanuts, get them out of there. You <laughs> know, If grains aren't working for you for one reason or saturated fat, you know, whatever, get it out of there. And then what is your preference? I always use raisins as an example for me. They've never, like, I'm not addicted to raisins. They don't, I'm not chemically dependent on them. I'm not allergic to grapes, but I've had raisins every way you can have them. I'm 40. So like, as you can imagine, I've had them every way you can have them and I just don't prefer them. So I don't eat them, right? Like they don't, just because they, on paper work for me, right, doesn't mean that I have to consume them. And so I think like the more we can have those kind of conversations with people and make it less fear-based and more like you were, you've been alluding to this whole time, more wise, more intuitive, more common sense, People really, right, like the fear response really calms down and they're like, oh, I don't have to eat a banana, even if it does on paper work for me. Like, no, if you don't like bananas, please don't eat them. Don't feel like you have to add them to your dietary repertoire just because somebody says bananas are high in whatever, and you need to do that. So I don't know if you've had similar conversations or what you think about that.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I tend to kind of thread those needles in the same way. So food addiction is something that it has to come up, you know, it has to be talked about. In one way or another, because those foods just get in the way of people having a good relationship um, with food. And then, you know, thinking about what people really love is something that I start with. So, what foods do you really love? And then asking the question, what foods love you back? So it might be medical, like you said, or you know, they find that they they get a, a negative gut reaction, or skin reaction, or a mental reaction if they eat certain things. And just being kind to yourself about giving yourself time to get used to those signals, and you know, if you start eating things that you don't really want to be eating, but you find hard to give up, then it's not that you you've failed and that everything's kind of gone to pot and you and you need to uh, give up. It's it's just you know something that happens to everyone on the on the on the road to getting better. So. What's interesting to me is when people realize that when they were eating kind of against their health goals, they probably weren't eating that many, that much variety. You know, they think they were. They think that they're going to be giving up all this kind of smorgasbord of uh, incredible, wonderful variety. But but when they really boil it down, they've probably got three to five meals that they have 80% of the time. And so all they really need to find is three to five go-tos for the way that they want to eat, whether that's paleo or keto or carnivore or whatever it is. And it's not that hard if you put a bit of time and thought into it to come up with three to five meals that contain ingredients that you really love and that love you back. And I think when you break it down like that for people and help them through that process, then actually it's pretty straightforward the difficult bit is just rewiring the brain to a stop reaching for the foods that don't love you back and b kind of, uh, you know, just, uh, Be kind to yourself when it doesn't go the way you want.
0: So if anyone was looking to work with you or figure out more about MedSci, where's the best place for our listeners to follow you and find you?
2: So you can go on to MedSci.com and we give away a free download uh, called The Six Pillars uh, to Better Mental Health. And it really is just like a starting point for people to think about how they might improve their diet and lifestyle to you know, make their mental health better. So you can get that from Metsci.com and you can uh, find out there how to join. There's a free membership. There's absolutely no strings attached and um, we're going to be adding more and more resources all the time. Uh, later in the year, there's going to be an app. So if you download the the, the six pillars, uh, join the mailing list uh, or or join the free membership, then you'll find out about when the app comes. Otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter where I'm really active at Allie Transforms, which is A-L-L-Y Transforms.
1: Sorry, I was having trouble unmuting there. (laughs) So we always have a signature question for our guests and we tailor it just a bit to make it just special. And so Allie, what we're wondering is if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food and mood or overall well-being and mental health physical health what would it be
2: i think it's a really hard one this because if it was my younger self then would it be me saying it would it be like i appear from the future and there's the wow factor of the fact that it's a time traveler who's telling them and therefore there's a bit more weight to what they're saying or is it i'm imagining what bit of advice would have helped me personally as a youngster, or I think I need more clarification. Can
0: you do both? Because now I want to know both answers. If it was future you coming back and early you sees future you, what would you say? And then if it was just like little you at that time and what you would have been open to hearing, what would you have taken away?
2: Yeah. So the first one, I think I could just get away with saying what I know now about metabolism and mental health for me. And I think it would be a paleo carnivore diet where you you get most of your calories from non-dairy ruminant fat and don't ask any questions try it for a couple of months see how you feel and get uh, as much light as you can sun without burning and make sure that you connect with people who make you feel good and because I'm you from the future this is some sort of crazy miracle and so you obviously have to listen to me and I think I would But if I was kind of giving myself advice as a young person in a different body, like you know, as an older person who might seem wise or something, but I was just myself at 18 when I was when I had loads of health problems and I wasn't doing very well, that would be much harder because you don't want to take advice how do you weight the advice of some random person against googling people didn't exist then i think but um you know googling keto for example and finding that there's credentialed professionals from the ivy league institutions saying keto will kill you so i genuinely don't know how i would give advice to a young person up against that. I think living the way I do as a kind of example is as good as it gets because there's a bit of a paradox around giving advice, like I've kind of alluded to before, where the more you press, the, fir- the, the more people can retreat, especially at that age. And it's kind of a, an unfortunate uh, thing that young people want to go out on their own and try new things and it's exactly what we're programmed evolutionarily to do but you know you know it's you know it's like that song i wish i knew what i know now when i was younger you somehow have to live it and i think being the change you want to see in the world is probably as close as i can get to that answer you know it's quite different. Quite a, don't you think it's quite a different question from the one of being a time traveling very
1: Yeah, no, it is perfect. Yeah. One feels very Terminator and the other <laughs> feels, the other one just feels so much more real, like you said. And then that, but in you tell, telling that story or giving that answer, it, it makes me wonder like, what is it that you heard when you were about 18 years old or in that time age when you, or age, when you were experiencing the worst of the worst, like what was it that you held on? Or even when you started to experience suicidal ideation, you know, 10 years ago, like what was it that made you hold on?
2: I think I um, thought of my family and the connections that I had and found hope in myself. Not everyone can do that. I found it unacceptable that I was having these thoughts. And I think I have a faith in that mixture again of scientific understanding and a sense of humanity or humanness and connection and wisdom that there is an answer out there that will work for you. It usually comes at the end of some hard work, regardless. Because that song about "I wish I knew what I know now when I was younger," I always thought it was funny that he doesn't actually just tell you, you know. When I was younger, I was like, "Just tell us what you know, and then I don't have to go through what you did." But it doesn't work like that. You have to go through something to, you know, for life for life to be meaningful. I don't really know, to be honest. I think Jen Unwin talks about hope as a huge factor in changing your health. You have to believe that things can get better and I suppose there was people out there who made me think that and that could have been members of my family who I knew would never give up on me friends and people who I hope to be like to someone where I can tell them I transformed you can do the same thing so just sort of hold on
0: so maybe today's episode can be somebody's hope yeah. So, we,
2: crossed.
1: yeah, I got all emotional. Like, that was beautiful. I think that that was probably the most heartfelt, genuine, like, vulnerable response to that question I've ever heard. And I just appreciate you so much today for being here, Allie, and sharing your story. I hope that we connect as, you know, in the future, um, I think so much of what you do and how you approach this work is very similar to how Clarissa and I work. And we're always looking for allies because sometimes it can really feel like we're alone because in the addiction world, it is very much, I'm going to tell you what to do and how to do it. And if you don't, then you're doing it wrong. And, um, I yeah. just don't believe that. So it's, it's really refreshing and nice to hear that somebody else believes in something the way that we do. So thank you so, so very much.
2: You're welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: Have a great night. Yeah. Bye guys. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, recovery from food addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life support group. I'm sweet enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.